Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Cavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Welcome to another episode of Collateral Damage. This is Mike Wilson here with my co-host Maureen Cavanaugh. How are you doing? I'm good, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. And uh, today we have a special guest, Chris McGreal, uh, who is a... Uh, an author, uh, an author of American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts, and he is also a reporter for The Guardian. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. Thank you. So I understand that you have, um, in your research for writing your book, and, and obviously your personal interest in this topic, you've done a lot of research uh, about, uh, was it West Virginia, uh, right, Which or Virginia, where your book is uh, um, kind of where the story is located, correct? Well, partly, yes, in West Virginia. I mean, I went to the kind of epicenter, the crucible of this epidemic, and that was those parts of Appalachia, like Mm -hmm. uh, southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, um, northwestern Virginia, um, where really the the CDC does a map, the Centers for Disease Control does a map, um, where you can see the rise in uh, overdoses and deaths across the country. Mm. And you see that that begins with a, a little red dot in southern West Virginia uh, in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. And then you see it spread out from there across the country into New England and other parts. But, but that, that initial kind of glowing red dot is the, the first kind of warning signal of what's to come is right there in southern West Virginia. Uh, Chris, you know, I don't think a lot of people really understand why that's the case. It didn't happen by accident, right? And um, the pharmaceutical companies had a part in, in, in that area becoming one of the first parts, uh, one, of the, one of the places where this, uh, this epidemic originated. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. It began there partly because the pharmaceutical marketing department simply looked at where pain relief was being dispensed. And those parts of the world, there's a lot of manual labor involved, um, a lot of people working on the mines or in other parts of Appalachia on logging, whatever, a lot of physical labor. And so what they saw was that everything from over-the-counter medicines, pain relief like Tylenol to the prescription of what was then available, which was relatively low-level opioids, um, was concentrated on those places. And so they went in uh, to push the drugs, particularly Purdue Pharma, when it brought OxyContin, the, um, the, the very high-strength uh, opioid, uh, uh, long-release opioid onto the market. It looked to where uh, the, the best market for that drug was like to be, and it, it concentrated on those places. One of the things that uh, is interesting uh, about the way that all of this works in America is that pretty much everything is for sale, and that mm-hmm. includes data about uh, which drugs are being dispensed where, um, who, which doctors are writing which prescriptions, and the only thing that's pretty much stripped out of that is the identity of the patient. But it was possible for Purdue Pharma and later other companies like Johnson & Johnson to look at that, see which doctors, not only which areas have high uh, prescribing of uh, opioids and other forms of pain relief, but which um, doctors specifically were prescribing that. And then they targeted those areas um, and they targeted the pharmacies in those areas as well. Um, and so that's part of the reason that you see it come out of that. And one of the things that's really striking about that is that there are a lot of interesting demographics about this uh, epidemic compared to other drug epidemics in the country. One of them is that it begins in rural America, unlike most other drug epidemics which begin in urban America. But the other thing is that, that at least for the first about decade, the people who are overdosed and dying, the single largest group of people are the middle-aged. Hmm. And that's unusual. Usually young people are the ones experimenting with drugs and overdosing. And it's because who is most likely to be using pain relief? It is uh, middle-aged people whose bodies are worn down, particularly if they've, they've um, 
been doing a lot of manual labor over the years. And what you see is that these, these drugs get passed around on the mines, they get passed around in factories, uh, on building sites, um, because they're pushed into those areas. So it wouldn't be unfair to say that the opioid epidemic in this country originated because of some very astute, and some people may say evil, not myself, of course, but some people um, may say that, um, marketers. Yes, it, it was a, it was for a the par- for the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Yes, it was a marketing exercise, and it was a very complicated marketing exercise. It goes way beyond simply uh, mm-hmm. identifying those areas and pushing it to doctors in those areas. But that was a very important component, uh, especially early on. And really, the reason that you see this drug epidemic in America, and you really don't see it in other developed countries, is because of the way drugs are marketed here and. Uh, the way that that marketing exercise then evolves from simply uh, targeting doctors into actually writing medical policy. Uh, the, the drug companies and those around the drug companies over you know, quite a few short years, if in effect, take control of medical policy. And yes, that's, that is a direct result of a desire to sell pills. It's nothing more than that. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about how it affects medical policy? Yes. So what you see early on is like so much in life, this began uh, with good intentions. And you see in the 1980s, a group of doctors who look at the fact that um, opioids, narcotics are being used for pain relief in people who are dying. It, it, it begins with the hospice movement in England, actually, in the, in the 50s and 60s, and it spreads to America. And then doctors say, well, if we're using this to treat pain, in people who have terminal diseases uh, and who are dying. Uh, why can't we use it more widely? Why can't we, these drugs be used to uh, relieve the incredible suffering of people living with very severe chronic pain, perhaps mm. very bad arthritis or, or something? Um, and so they, they started to explore that. And in doing so, you see a small group of doctors who come to the conclusion that the reason that these drugs are not being prescribed is because of an unwarranted stigma towards opioids. And for that, you you basically have to go back more than a century to the Mm. post-Civil War era, when because, or partly because of uh, soldiers who were wounded in the Civil War, you see the rise of morphine, you see more and more people using it, Uh, it enters mainstream medicine, Um, you know, it's in cough syrup and things. Um, And... uh, what you see by the turn of the into the 20th century is an epidemic of morphine usage. And you see America appoint a president, appoint uh, its first drug czar, Teddy mm-hmm. Roosevelt appoints a drug czar who describes America as, as the world's worst drug fiends. And in the crackdown that follows, you see the medical profession begin to treat um, morphine-based drugs with great uh, concern and prescribe them with great care. Mm-hmm. By the time we get round to the 1980s, these doctors think that that care is unwarranted and they set about breaking down uh, what they regard as the, as the stigma against those drugs. And one of the ways they do that is to take quite narrow studies, quite small studies, and misrepresent them as evidence that opioids are not addictive when used to treat pain. And at that point, the pharmaceutical industry never being you know, slow to spot an opportunity, they lip, limp, uh, leap in. And effectively, they turbocharge that with their money. And they do it in a number of ways. But one of the ways is that they, they elevate those, those doctors' opinions through what are ostensibly independent pain organizations, um, you know, medical professional bodies like the American Pain Society. And they fund them and use them as front organizations to push the idea that uh, opioids should be widely prescribed, not only to those who are dying, but uh, to those who have long-term chronic pain, which of course for the drug companies is a much bigger market. If your market is somebody who's going to be dead in a few months, Mm. that's a limited profit. If you've got somebody who's got arthritis and going to be prescribed these pills for the next 20 or 30 years, then you're going to make a lot more money. And through those organizations, they begin to change medical policy and medical culture. And it's a number of ways, but perhaps the best known example, and the one that people will perhaps recognize from their own experience, 
is that the American Pain Society began to push pain as the fifth vital sign. And the idea was that your pain can be measured alongside your other vital signs like your blood pressure and your heart rate. And they pushed that through an organization called the Joint Commission. And the Joint Commission licenses hospitals and clinics in this country. And without basically the Joint Commission's approval, uh, what happens is you lose federal funding. Um, and so hospitals are very keen to do what the Joint Commission says. And so when the Joint Commission comes up with what is in effect an edict that hospitals must identify pain uh, as the fifth vital sign, they must, they must test for it, and then they must treat it. Hospitals follow that edict. The problem is, there's several problems with this, one of which is you can't measure pain in the way you can measure your blood pressure. There's no machine. So it's entirely subjective, mm. which is why you went into hospital, you would see in a, in a clinic or in the consulting rooms, you'd see on the wall um, that strip of smiley faces and you will be asked, what level is your pain at? And the only way to tell is, is through the patient. The doctor can't measure it. So mm. it relies firstly on the patient. The second thing that happened was the Joint Commission required patient satisfaction surveys ask a question. Are you satisfied with your pain treatment? Mm. And of course, as any doctor will tell you, um, when somebody comes into an office, they're mostly looking for a pill to solve that problem. They're not looking to be told, actually, you need to do more exercise and lose weight or improve your, uh, mm. uh, your health, your lifestyle. Um, and then the third element was that the way the Joint Commission's literature was, was, was written uh, in advising doctors and hospitals, it directed, it pushed those medics towards prescribing opioids as the default solution. Mm. And that is no surprise once you discover that, in fact, that literature was written by Purdue Pharma, which was in a financial relationship with the Joint Commission. And that, in effect, Purdue Pharma got to write what was officially medical education brochures, but were, were written much like the marketing material that they were pushing out to doctors. And one very good example in that is that they repeated the completely now discredited claim that you cannot become addicted to um, opioids if, you, uh, if they're being used to treat pain. And so you see this big push. And, and by the early 2000s, doctors will tell you there was a kind of tyranny around pain as the fifth vital sign. They were under enormous pressure to treat pain and to treat them with opioids. And then the pressure starts coming from other directions as well with financial interest, particularly the insurance companies. They have an interest because pills are cheap. They get the patient out the door quick. If you're going to treat somebody long term for pain with, say, physiotherapy, much more expensive business. Mm -hmm. So doctors will tell you that it was very hard. And if they didn't prescribe the pills, they got a poor satisfaction score from the patient. The, patient, the hospital was on their case because they were worried about the Joint Commission being on their case. Mm -hmm. And so you see that build up. And that isn't the only example, but it, it's a very good one. And that's entirely the result of effectively a, uh, uh, the drug industry's marketing strategies. My stomach is turning listening yeah. to this. <clears throat> that's probably the best, shortest uh, um, explanation of what happened that I've ever heard you. Thank you so mm -hmm. much, because I think there's, a, there's far too many people that don't know that that's that's exactly what happened. So thank you for that. You know, it, it almost sounds like they, they exploited an existing market, right? You know, the, 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 the market to basically promote medicine, like any other product that you can promote a car, you know, clothes, whatever it is, you get to, you get to choose your market and you get to aggressively pursue them in this, this very capitalist way. And man, they took, well, <laughs> <laughs> so one of, one of the things that's, that, and this isn't entire, uh, solely true of the, the drug industry, but, um, uh, sorry, of, of the opioid industry, but the United States is unusual in that only two countries permit drug advertising in the way that it's pursued here, uh, and that's the United States and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, so part of the way these drugs were marketed um, would not be permitted in other countries, although that doesn't exclude the marketing to doctors. That would be permitted. Of course. Um, um, but, you know, the, uh, the, there are all kinds of 
of problems in how that then happens. And one of them is, is lack of regulation. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you do, you're right. What they did was they took an existing market uh, and exploited it. That's exactly what happened. I think too is lack of education and not that I want to give anybody a pass because they didn't know because it was pretty easy to quickly figure this out that this was not a good idea and I understand all the you know the things that the doctors were going through too but they take an oath not to harm right so the people that were were um pushing these drugs the doctors that were writing all of these prescriptions they certainly knew they were doing something wrong by the effect that it was having on the people that they were treating i would imagine and i think that um we're still in a position where there's little if any uh training for uh medical professionals in in addiction i don't know well that was certainly one when i was researching the book that was one of the things that made me sit up and go what was yeah. when doctors would tell me that you know, in their four or five years of initial primary medical training, they got hours, um, maybe at best a day or two, mm. of uh, training in addiction and pain care. And it just wasn't on the agenda. I was speaking to Bertha Madras, a professor at uh, Harvard the other day, who was, who was the person who actually wrote President Trump's Opioid Commission report. And mm. she said to me, she used to lecture on this at Harvard and almost no students would turn up to that because they weren't obligatory um, classes. And wow. so I think that was, that was really surprising to me that doctors weren't trained. And, you know, the, the consequence of that was that these doctors were getting their information about these medicines and how to use them, not from professional, other professional medical personnel, but from salespeople, right. from salespeople who were telling them one thing, who were pushing one line, that these drugs are effective, yeah. uh, which wasn't proven for a start uh, as long-term treatment, and that there's little risk of addiction, which was blatantly untrue. But also not including the caveats, which in any kind of medical training you would get, they weren't, they weren't uh, including the caveats that people who per perhaps already um, suffered some form of addiction are more vulnerable. Um, they were deliberately led, uh, left out. And so I've, you know, I've, I certainly feel some sympathy for a lot of primary care doctors who certainly for the few, first few years um, came to believe what they were told, partly because nobody was telling them any differently. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also true that I, you know, one of the things that, again, was shocking to me as I was researching the book was that you know, you look back and you think, wow, this is a, an epidemic that began when Bill Clinton was in the White House. And it, it, it kind of escalated uh, under George Bush and then Obama. And you think, you know, why was nobody ringing the alarm bells? Why weren't the brakes being put on? Where were the doctors, as, as you say? Mm -hmm. And it turns out there were. There were uh, doctors warning. There were doctors seeing the effects. And um, one of the kind of heroes of, of, of my story is the is Jane Ballantyne, uh, uh, also a professor at Harvard Medical School and um, at its associated uh, hospital, Massachusetts General. And she very early on, she initially buys into the idea that these drugs are what is promised, but she begins to see that her patients aren't doing well on them. And she mm -hmm. notices two things. One is that some are definitely becoming addicted. Their families are coming to, the, to her and saying, look, these, these pills, you know, they're changing the personality of my husband, my wife, my child. Um, there's clearly something wrong here with them. Um, mm. They've been on them for a few months now, and uh, this isn't good. And she began to realize that addiction was a problem, that it was untrue that they weren't addicted. And the other thing she realized was that those people that were taking them for more than a few months, the pills really weren't working either. She said, partly because of addiction, but the pills start to defeat themselves. You, the more dependent you become, they replicate mm. the pain you're in. And she said, the idea was that these, these drugs would improve her patients' lives, and they weren't in many cases. So she does a study, and she writes an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, which appears in 2003. And as she said to me, she expected this to cause the medical profession to at least pause to say, well, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? We need to look more closely at these drugs because there are no long-term studies. This is one of the things about the drug industry. It's never done a long-term study about being on opioids for more than three months mm -hmm. and what the effect is on a person. And she thought that they, this would at least cause some action 
and some closer scrutiny of the claims being made. What happens instead is uh, that she and other doctors who ring the alarm bell, there's a huge pushback from the industry. Um, and, and some of the other doctors who want to see pain pills prescribed and see opioids prescribed, they accuse her of, of uh, buying into the stigma. The drug industry sets about changing the conversation, particularly mm. in Congress, but elsewhere, where what it starts to do is to paint the people who become addicted or dependent um, and who overdose as abusers. It's their own fault. The problem mm. is with the people, not the pills. And then they turn it into a moral argument where there's millions of people on, uh, who live with chronic pain and we mustn't take their pills away because of these abusers. And We're still having that, that conversation now. Indeed, it continues to be pursued. But the fact that, you know, um, at least some of those people who become dependent had begun on prescriptions and were following their prescriptions and were falsely told these were safe drugs uh, is completely discarded. It's, it's an, a black and white. There are good and bad people in this. Mm. And essentially, those voices that were raised in concern were silenced. Um, and quite effectively, both within the medical profession um, and, uh, and inside the political sphere by Congress, which was effectively bought off. It's a hard machine to push against, you know, uh, uh, David and Goliath, you know, speaking up and saying that this is, this is a problem. It needs to change. And I mean, I'm glad that people were speaking up, but I can understand that it, it didn't, it didn't get the impact that she wanted because she was up against a, a effectively a money machine. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, it's quite shocking. Um, when you you listen to professionals, people who saw it firsthand, Art Van Zee in um, in Virginia, for instance, a doctor very early on went to the FDA, went to Congress, and said, "Look, OxyContin is um, addicting and killing a good chunk of the population here. It's just flooding this area, winning it nearly, and they're marketing it as safe, and people are taking it, and it's not safe." Mm. Um, there was a doctor called Charles Lucas, who's been a surgeon at uh, Detroit General since the 1960s. And he told me that pain is the fifth vital sign became so kind of tyrannical in his hospital that um, he noticed that patients who just had operations were being given very high levels of uh, opioids because the idea was they shouldn't be in any pain whatsoever. And he said, you just cut them open. Of course, they're going to be in pain. But... He said the problem was that, that by completely suppressing their pain and putting them on these drugs, they weren't moving about because they were drugged mm. up. Um, and he said that interfered with their recovery. And he and one of his uh, colleagues, they did a study of uh, post-surgical deaths in Michigan and concluded that they had ridden, risen six times as mm. a direct result of the tyranny of you've got to give people um, pain pills and of course that tyranny part of it was built on the idea the completely false idea that you can live pain free mm -hmm. and there are just times in your life when you can't and uh, periods in your life certain ages you know well i've had i'm in recovery myself and i've had two surgeries uh in my recovery uh shoulder surgery and stomach surgery and uh for both of those i went in with the attitude i'm, I'm allergic to narcotics you know i'm an addict and and i can't have them and i'm, I'm not going to say they were they were pushed, but I'm going to say that I was told repeatedly that I should take them. And regardless of my uh, addiction issues and stuff like that, that they told me it would be better if I didn't feel the pain. And I said, you know, I had to fight back and say, I'm, I'm actually okay with the fact that there's going to be pain post-surgery and uh, I'd be better off not taking the medication. And they were, they were pretty resistant to the idea. Uh, and, and how many days of pills did they prescribe for you? I didn't take them. I didn't take the prescription. Your, oh, you didn't even go home with it? No, I didn't even bother with it. This is the other element in this. It's not only that these pills are prescribed, but it's the scale of the prescribing. Right. So, um, you know, uh, if, you, if, you, um, if you go uh, to the dentist, I, I had two teenage sons. They went to have their, um, their wisdom teeth out. They both came home with a week's worth of hydrocodone and a, and a renewal for a week which mm. is an insane amount of drugs, right. um, just uh, mind-bogglingly high. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, American dentists prescribe like dentists in no other country for what might be a night or two, perhaps you might go home with a day or two of pills, but to go mm. home 
with seven days. Uh, and the possibility for a refill. Right. And the right. possibility. And that was true. I had knee surgery and came home with two weeks of opioids, hydrocodone as well, and um, needed them for one night. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, it, that's the other issue. It's not just they're prescribed at all. It's the scale of the prescribing. Right. Of course. Right. I don't think that training has changed either. I know the American Society of Addiction Medicine recommends there be training, but I don't think that we've instituted any training. I think it's just about the same, which is hard for me to wrap my head around. Some medical schools have. Some medical schools are much better about their students coming out with this training now. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. But the idea of comprehensive Right. Uh, obligatory training for doctors who prescribe these drugs, which some other drugs, there's, you know, it, doctors are obliged to have training specifically on those drugs before they can prescribe them. Mm-hmm. And there were members of Congress, uh, um, Hal Rogers of Eastern Kentucky, whose, whose district was very, very badly hit by this epidemic, recognized early on what was going on. And he pushed legislation with other members of Congress to oblige doctors to have this training. And the American Medical Association and others resisted it, saying it was too inconvenient. Mm-hmm. You know, I've actually, I've heard a lot of people talk about the different ways that this can be approached, you know, and, and listening to you, which I appreciate you telling the story. I sat quietly and listened to that. Like, I, I never really do. I talk a lot, <laughs> uh, but I was just intrigued. I was listening and soaking it all in. And it's, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable to hear uh, that I and the many other people out there were basically, I don't want to say a victim, but we were part of a plot, um, you know, a financial plot by a, a marketing company, a, a, a pharmaceutical company, just to make money. That was it. Just a, just a part of that yeah. plot. And that, you know, the, the machine is so big um, that I, I, I have to say, you know, I've, I've, I've heard people write books about what they can do to fix it, what they could do to change it. And I'm just curious, I mean, in your research, what do you believe is the solution? I mean, what do you believe is the step that America could take? I mean, is it changing how we allow pharmaceutical companies to market their products? Is it a better education for doctors? Is it a combination of all those things? Is there something in your research that you came up with that you feel would be an appropriate next step? Well, I think there's one big lesson, and it's about who controls medical policy, who writes and controls medical policy. And in most other developed countries, that is done uh, by a combination of the medical profession and governments. And I realize that America, you know, when you say the government and, and your medical care, there's lots of people recoil at that idea. But, you know, most West European uh, countries have a minister of health uh, who has oversight of medical policy in combination now, it, it's made slightly easier that you have some form of public health systems in most of those countries alongside private health care. But the mm-hmm. fact is that there is some form of, of governance. Um, the pharmaceutical companies were able to wade in here and do what they did because really there was no overall uh, control. And those organizations that were responsible for regulating uh, failed. Um, Partly, part of the problem is they all had a different role. So you've got the Food and Drug Administration, which permits drugs onto the market and says what they can be used for. But you have a whole load of other federal organizations as well. And none of them really, some of them just failed completely. And the FDA certainly failed uh, in many ways. Um, but other, um, other drug, other federal oversight bodies responsible for drugs also failed to rise to the occasion, chose to mm. ignore it for whatever reason, partly because it was politically sensitive. So I think that that's, that's, that's the core issue is, is um, how do you control medical policy? Who decides medical policy? Um, and how do you take that huge influence of money out of it? Because even those bodies that, that like the American Medical Association and others that supposedly represent the medical profession are infused with mm-hmm. money from the industry. Research is infused with money from the industry. I attended the trial in Oklahoma of Johnson & Johnson, um, and one of the people we heard from there was Dr. Russell Portnoy. And Russell Portnoy was one of those doctors I was talking about earlier, a pain specialist who really pushed the idea of opening up opioid prescribing. He was instrumental mm-hmm. in all of this. And he ends up in the pay of, uh, as, a, as a consultant and as a speaker, of Purdue Pharma, of Johnson & Johnson, and other companies. And on the stand, he admits 
that the research that he did and the speeches that uh, uh, conclusions he came to were selectively quoted by the drug companies and he really didn't do anything about it um, and that research was steered towards the outcomes that they would like to see they simply don't research things they don't want to see they do research things if they think it's going to come up with the right outcome mm. um, and and it's very subtle but what you see is the money infuses everything. The money infuses uh, ostensibly independent medical bodies. It infuses research. Doctors need it. Universities need it. Um, hospitals need it. Mm. Um, and it infuses federal organizations. The Food and Drug Administration Department responsible for approving opioids gets 70% of its income from the drug companies. And the FDA will insist that that doesn't affect them. But as people in the FDA have admitted to me, it gives them access. It opens doors. It gets them a hearing. Yeah. And the other people who were giving um, an alternative view of what was going on weren't heard as clearly. So, um, Chris, I was fortunate enough to um, have members of uh, the, the support groups from Magnolia New Beginnings uh, meet with Maura Healy this uh, last week, actually. And one of her questions for us was... Um, what do we want to see happen with all these trials? And as I'm sure you're aware, she was uh, instrumental in the, in the beginning of these lawsuits against Purdue Pharma. And overwhelmingly, and this is made up of mothers mostly, there's some dads in there, <clears throat> and other family members that are supporting someone who is struggling with a substance use disorder. So it's mostly their children. Um, and overwhelmingly, what they said was that they wanted to see it, it People, they wanted to see these, um, who, the, the, those that are sued, the, the representatives of Purdue Pharma, the family, or the, fam the Sackler family, I would love to throw the marketers in there too, but these people uh, pursued criminally and uh, to go to jail and to have to admit, um, admit, admit culpability in this. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, I know that you were also in Cleveland and I was just wondering what you were, uh, what, what you're thinking about that. Well, I, the Cleveland um, was going to be the first of the big federal opioid trials. Uh, the, there's a series of trials, um, and the idea is that, that these are each test trials, and after a handful or so, uh, the judge will look at the, the rulings by juries and the awards and come up with a comprehensive final settlement for all of the, I think it's, we're now up to about 2,800 lawsuits against the various bits of the drug industry, whether they're the opioid makers, the distributors, the pharmacy chains, or whoever. That case never went, never got heard because uh, they all settled out of court, uh, with the exception of one of the pharmacy chains, and that was moved to a separate trial with the pharmacy chains. So we, we wait to see whether any of the other trials happen or they'll try and settle before uh, the, the hearing. Um, but what is notable about all of these settlements is there is no admission of culpability. There is no admission of wrongdoing or guilt. And I was, I was quite surprised by what then happened the following day because I wrote a story for The Guardian essentially laying out what had happened, how these, these uh, drug companies had settled at the last minute. Some had settled earlier, but some settled very much at the last minute, particularly the distributors. And in the story, I mentioned that towards the end that Purdue Pharma had previously settled. Um, and I said that Purdue Pharma uh, um, fired up, helped fire up this epidemic with its drug OxyContin. The following day, I received a letter from a lawyer for one branch of the Sackler family uh, saying that that was um, hyperbole and defamatory. And the next, uh, a few hours later, I, an email from a PR firm for another branch of the Sackler family dropped. And it said that this was uh, false uh, and a complete, complete fabrication and I should change that accusation. And I thought that was very, very revealing because with Purdue Pharma, there's a proposed bankruptcy plan. Um, the members of the family say they're wishing to give up $3 billion, which sounds like a lot until you realize they they earn between 12 and 15 billion from OxyContin. And what you realize is that not only are they not uh, admitting guilt, they're actually pushing back against the idea still 
that they are responsible. It, do, it does raise the question why they're prepared to give up their company and pay all that money if they did nothing wrong. Mm. Um, and I think that's reflective of a wider issue within the industry. If you don't have these, uh, either one of two things has to happen. As with the Johnson & Johnson trial, there needs to be a public airing of the evidence. And a lot mm. came out in that Johnson & Johnson trial, which I think is one of the reasons it led them to settle uh, the trial in Cleveland. Um, but if you're, not, if you're gonna have all these settlements, there has to be an agreement that the documents uh, made in discovery, revealed in discovery that show the internal workings, the decisions, who, who was saying what to whom, uh, what they knew about addiction and how they reacted to it, what these executives were doing to influence medical policy or Congress. All of that needs to come out um, because if they're not going to admit, if they're just going to try and buy their way out of justice, which is one of the accusations against them, that this is, they view this as the cost of, of doing business um, and that there is no accountability, then you know, that also contains great dangers for the future because it means we go on as before. But isn't that isn't that how most companies in America have dealt with things like that? The car companies, you know, when there are um, uh, recalls and stuff like that, they have to measure out the cost of the lawsuits associated with it versus fixing the recall. You know, that it's the cost of doing business, the, the loss of life and how much money they're willing to pay to deal with that. Yes, I, that is. Um, I think perhaps the scale is different here. That's the difference. Of course. You know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people here. I, as appalling as these things with cars can be, they're perhaps a few dozen people, a few hundred. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I don't know in these cases whether it's clear that the car company knew there was something wrong beforehand or not. Um, I suspect mm -hmm. it, it varies. Certainly Volkswagen knew there was something wrong with diesel, but mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a slightly different thing. Um, and there is a criminal prosecution in that case, interestingly. Um, <laughs> It's kind but of interesting how you can't, it's, it doesn't work the same way. I don't understand yes, that. Yeah. Indeed. And yeah. I think that, that we, we're talking about something on a wholly different scale. I, I tend as a journalist to avoid the worst word conspiracy because I think it, it makes you look conspiratorial. Um, sure does but I sound do like think one though. <laughs> yes, I do think in this case it's, it's apt. I do think there was a conspiracy. There was a conspiracy to sell these drugs. And there is now a conspiracy to cover up accountability and culpability. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, one of the things I constantly hear from the families, uh, from the victims, from people who became addicted themselves, is that they want to see a public accounting, a public reckoning. Uh, mm -hmm. And the only way to have that is, of course, full exposure. And mm -hmm. uh, we don't have that yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where I saw this. I was, I was reading up on, on your book earlier and I saw a, a quote that said it was the white collar version of The Wire. I believe that was something associated with uh, the, the, the way this is being laid out. Um, you know, The Wire, for anyone that doesn't know, is a, a wonderful TV series about drug dealing. Um, <laughs> and it is just such an aggressive market toward how do we get people to buy this product? How do we get them to keep buying the product? Who are the people more likely to continue using this product long-term so that we can make money? What's the best place in the country to sell this product? What, what are the best people to hire to market our product? What doctors will sell our product the most? How can we make sure they don't know enough about this product to change their opinions? I mean, it was very conspiratorial. <laughs> Indeed, and in fact, you get, we got an insight into that at the Johnson & Johnson trial in Oklahoma uh, in August when um, that was a state case. Um, a civil case. And Johnson & Johnson were convinced that they, their case was based on the idea they didn't sell many opioids in Oklahoma, and anyway, you couldn't directly link any of the deaths to their drug. The, the state, and you know, this is a conservative state, Republican Attorney General, the, these, these are not people who are instinctively hostile to big business. Mm -hmm. The state's case was that it wasn't about how many drugs they sold. It was about the narrative that they created that distorted medical science, which affected um, the practice of medicine and the, and the practice of pain medicine across the country. And that in itself broadly influenced what happened in Oklahoma and led to deaths there. Mm -hmm. And the judge found uh, that was the case, that Johnson & Johnson was Cold War. And one of the reasons was some of the evidence is just shocking. I can see why these drug companies don't want this to come out. But mm -hmm. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is that there's uh, memos that the sales reps sell, send to their managers 
And the, one of the sales reps, she had seen a doctor and a doctor had raised concerns about addiction. Uh, and she had said to him, and she writes this down, she says to him, look, those patients that don't die probably won't become hooked. Mm-hmm. And that is her response to a doctor raising a, a legitimate concern about addiction. And then the other thing we see is they hired um, McKinsey, the consultants, yep. on how to market their drug, Duragesic, it's called. It's a very powerful fentanyl-based opioid. And one of the things that, that, um, that McKinsey recommends is to look at the group that is most using these drugs already. In other words, the group that's most vulnerable to addiction and overdose, which is men between 40 and 50. And they said, target your sales there. And mm-hmm. that's what they did. And it, it's a very cynical thing. And what you see, once it all came out, Johnson & Johnson's actions all came out, you, you see how much they replicate exactly what Purdue Pharma did. And the mm-hmm. judge actually found that what Johnson & Johnson was trying to do was to catch up with OxyContin and Purdue Pharma. So mm-hmm. it simply uh, replicated, its, um, replicated its, its marketing strategy. Well, even with even with that lawsuit and all the money that they were, you know, forced to settle with, they Johnson and Johnson walked away with that feeling as though that was a win for them, uh, well, stock wise. Yeah, I think well, partly because of the slight misinterpretation there, people thought that was a relatively low amount, but of course it's one state, um, and if you were to extrapolate that, it runs into a, an awful lot more money. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure in the end that Johnson and Johnson, how much the executives did think it was a win. It was, it was a very embarrassing expose of how the cynic cynicism of the executives mm-hmm. involved in that. And um, there was a lot of detail, which is worth going and looking back to some of what went on. I go mm-hmm. to the Chris McGrill and the Guardian. I, I yep. wrote about it, but um, um, and I think it might be one of the reasons that uh, Johnson & Johnson decided to settle a case in Cleveland rather than let it go before a jury because right. they realized just how damaging all of this looks and they're not going to get away with technicalities, certainly not in the court of public opinion. Well, I mean, our hope is obviously that these trials and lawsuits and settlements and stuff, <laughs> uh, not only expose those things long term, but ultimately will change how the, the medical policy is written and who is funding these things. But it is a, it is a machine. And I know that people like yourself writing these articles, people listening, people talking, uh, people educating themselves, hopefully another generation of doctors uh, and uh, prescribers who are getting more educated about the medicines that they're using and choosing to get that education from somebody besides the people providing the medication. That's nice. Um, I think uh, that along with a series of other things might be the beginning of change. So I'm, I'm encouraged after hearing that absolutely nauseating account of how uh, we as citizens were taken advantage of, of and part of this big plot uh, to hear that there are things being done to change it. I certainly think some things have changed a lot and it, and partly it's thanks to people like yourselves who've gone out there um, and for years been agitating on this issue, um, breaking down stigma, demanding attention, explaining. Mm. And I think that, you know, I've seen that across the country. I come across people that I write about in my book, who really made a difference. And long before it was not only not fashionable, but actually to admit that you had a child who might have died of a, uh, a drug overdose, an opioid overdose, a heroin overdose, um, carried stigma for the family. And people have gone out there and they've really changed things. And you can see that change. You can see it in the, in the nature of the public debates. What worries me is whether the broader lessons about the influence of the drug industry on uh, medical policy and politics have been learned. Yeah, we might, we might now be reining in the prescribing, although it remains much higher in this country than any other country for opioids. Um, but I, I think um, there's nothing to say this couldn't happen with a completely different drug uh, somewhere down the line. If the, if the structural things don't change, mm-hmm. if the regulators don't regulate better, and, and put more distance between themselves. Um, if the Congress doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is to oversee the regulators who are overseeing the drug companies, and it's back to front, right? <laughs> the drug companies are funding Congress, and what they bought with Congress wasn't action, they bought inaction. They bought Congress doing nothing. They mm-hmm. bought Congress keeping the, the, the floodgates of mass prescribing open. And 
whatever the regulators say about independent action, they do feel the political heat. There's no doubt about it. So it was the wrong way around. The drug companies were influencing Congress. Congress helps influence the regulated. And so you end up with the regulated uh, controlling the regulators in the end. And I don't know that that lesson uh, has fully been learned. I agree um, with you. I agree with you completely. And I think that that's, that will come, as, come back eventually and bite us all. Yeah. Well, the medicines are changing. The, the, yeah. the policies aren't changing, but the medicines are. I mean, that, that's right. all I'm seeing is that we're vilifying the medicine. The medicine is bad. We shouldn't have this medicine. People shouldn't be taking the medicine. The policy is not changing. The capitalist approach toward selling medicine like any other product is not changing. I still see just as many commercials telling me to take a medicine and talk to my doctor about it. I don't know what it is, you know. And so, I mean, all of that still exists. That's not changing yet. Um, I think we've we've spent a lot of time vilifying the medicine instead of the approach, like you said, and the companies and how they pushed it and, and the stuff in the background. It wasn't the, the well, I think that's medicine. a really, really good point. I mean, there was clearly a role for these medicines, right? Sure. They help yeah. people at end of life care. They help people post surgery. But sure. it's in controlled circumstances. You don't need them because you've twisted your ankle and well, it's hurting a bit. Or I mean, you broke your finger. You know, um, uh, so but I, I, I think the broader point of what you talk about is an important one actually because they the this whole epidemic kind of embedded itself in a culture here that's known as the pill for every ill mentality mm. uh, doctors prescribe pills in general americans take some form of pharmaceutical uh, drug at much higher rate than almost any other country mm. and that's because um the default for almost anything is take a pill um, and as you say, that's pushed. You only got to watch the nightly news to see all the forms, things you can get drugs for that you never needed, even knew you needed a drug for. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> rather than dealing with the underlying causes frequently, which could be everything from you know, um, uh, lack of exercise, diet, um, all kinds of things, stress, these all contribute to all, they contribute, they all contribute to pain, but a lot of other things too. Right. Um, the default is let's take a pill right. and that's a culture that's been created particularly with the rise of television advertising um, of drugs which ironically started at the same time that oxycontin was um was introduced to the market although oxycontin was never pushed on television in that way. you know the, but it's the, the mentality i think yes yeah. yeah i mean the reality is is that humans have been trying to find a way to safely play with opioids for hundreds of years you know what I mean? Constantly through a variety of different prescriptions. It's going to come back in some other form with some other name under some other company, some other way it's going to be put out there. There's a new safer way to use this thing that we shouldn't be using in the first place. And I, I think that, like I said, the medicines will always change. The name of the medicine will always change, but the approach, that's the part that I think that um, really needs to be uh, discussed, discovered. I would love to know, as you said, through these trials and stuff, why or how, uh, it was allowed to happen. Who knew? Um, who stopped? Who, who who didn't take action? Like you said, with Congress just standing still, that was the money that was paid to just keep them from taking action. If that comes out and if that changes, I think the entire approach toward medicine would have to change. I, I can't imagine it could stay a privatized, money-driven industry and not fall victim to greed. Well, we, we will see. I mean... Uh... Clearly, this election, that, that issue is up for debate right sure. now, so we'll see. I mean, I think the other missing part of this puzzle, which is um, equally important, actually, is the lack of science. One of the reasons they were able to get away with this was that there were no comprehensive studies on the effects of opioids. You have to ask yourself why. They're, they're now being done, but it's 20 years too late. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they weren't done was the drug company had no interest in doing them. Um, so there was a reliance on, on essentially... Sometimes pseudoscience. Um, in all of this mix, there's a, one of the doctors who has a degree of culpability, a, a doctor called David Haddock, and he cooked up a theory of pseudo-addiction, which said that because you can't become addicted uh, to opioids if they're combating your pain levels, then what looks like addiction is in fact just pain, and so you should elevate the dosages of uh, opioids. And that idea took hold for a while. So um, is that pseudoscience talking about pseudo-addiction? Yes, That's it's completely pseudoscience. Uh, he, uh, before long, was working for Purdue Pharma, and as far as I know, it still does. What a shock. And became a, 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 leading, a leading voice 
for those ideas. But the fact is that they took hold partly because of an absence of significant research. Um, and I think this, this gets back to another kind of question is, is how do you fund research into this stuff? And the federal government didn't wade in on such an important issue and provide funds. It's left to the drug industry. And if the drug industry doesn't want to research it, it probably doesn't get done. Mm -hmm. They fund what they want to research, like you said earlier. Yeah, and we, you know, you, you, I guess you see that for other drugs too, is that drugs mm -hmm. that aren't going to be profitable or are only going to treat a minority of the population sometimes don't get researched mm -hmm. because it doesn't make financial sense. But this was different in that case. Well, you... and, and we tolerate that. We tolerate that. I mean, I... again, that's a lack of, I think, back to, I think that's a lack of, of proper political oversight. Whether yeah. you want to have a minister of health as they do in European countries, okay, I get you don't want necessarily you have a secretary of health but plays a different role here but there was a lack of oversight proper oversight that um that meant that failure happened you know one of the things that uh, i've talked about in the past is the, uh, the the war on drugs you know the uh, prohibitionism and the fact that if we get rid of the substances that people would stop using them and you know one of the things that i've learned over the last few years is that it's not about the supply it's about the demand you know here in america you talked about we have the the, the pill for every ill um, you know, which is, it's a mentality. It's a state of mind. It's a, it's a, a social issue that we as a country feel like we need to relieve ourselves from the pain of our existence for one reason or another, whether it's the stress of our country, whether it's where we're raised, whether we're disenfranchised or whatever community it is and whatever issue we have, for some reason, we as a country have this overwhelming desire to feel relief from the pain of our own existence here. And so, you know, whether it's, pharmaceutical companies or drugs on the street, there is still an overwhelming desire that just exists. And I think if we expand this to a much more macro level, of course, yes, there was, there was an issue here. This thing did happen and it was extremely problematic, but there was a market for it. There was a way for people to come in and do that. And there was a, a, there was a, um, a demand for it. There was a demand for relief. Um, and I think that's really a huge issue that, I mean, I don't know what the answer to it is. I've just identified, I think Bruce Alexander with the dislocation theory identified it as well, again, without a solution, just that there's this, this overwhelming sense of we need relief from what's happening. And we look for that in pharmaceutical medications. We go to our doctors and say, I just don't feel right. And the best solution they have is to treat the symptom of that, which is pain or discomfort or depression or anxiety. And, you know, I feel like we can fight this, um, but hopefully we as a country can come together and actually start to change um, the world that we're living in so that we don't feel like we have to escape from it so much. Because whether it's pharmaceuticals or street drugs, the demand exists. I mean, I meet people who have never touched a pharmaceutical drug and they are absolutely raging heroin addicts. They didn't start with the pills. They started with the pursuit of relief. You know, maybe they started with other things like alcohol, a nice, wonderful legal substance that kills more people every year than all other drugs combined. You know, and so these things exist and the need for relief exists. I definitely blame the pharmaceutical companies for their aggressive tactics and how they came in and took advantage of that demand. Um, but even without them, the demand exists. You know? No, there's no doubt that social factors played an enormous part in this. And that, as you say, there was this demand. You know, there'd been a demand for methamphetamine. There, mm -hmm. there, um, and there are very large numbers of people who became addicted to these drugs who didn't have a prescription. Uh, didn't begin with a prescription. Um, and there's absolutely no doubt about that. But that was clear um, before too long. It was clear by the mid-2000s. And I think the big question at that point has to be, well, then why go on feeding that market? Why prescribe so many drugs, mm -hmm. make them so available? Why over-prescribe that they're sitting in people's medicine cabinets? Mm -hmm. um, why make them so easy to get that anybody can walk in and get a prescription and walk out? Um, pretty much by saying, oh, I've got a twinge in my back. Um, mm. In those circumstances, uh, I guess the you can say that the drug companies were knowingly feeding that market. That it's market that they now blame. Um, and, you know, I've, for instance, the um, mayor of the West uh, Virginia town of Huntington, Steve Williams, said to me, he said, these were drug dealers in Amani suits. Mm. They knew who they were selling to. So mm. that's absolutely right that there was a social market there as well and social factors. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. um, but to sell those drugs and to then, on top of that, sell very high strength ones, 
um, is feeding the market, but also endangering people's lives. Mm-hmm. America isn't alone in having social factors. Um, you, you can look at socioeconomic factors like unemployment and lack of opportunity, particularly amongst young people. And you could go to Spain, which suffered very, very badly in the economic collapse a mm-hmm. decade ago. They have twice the youth unemployment of some of these areas like West Virginia. They do not have the same scale of problem. That probably suggests that that's not because people don't want to use those drugs, they're not feeling the same social pressures. It's simply they're not available as easily. So people are more likely to turn to uh, lesser, less dangerous forms. I don't want to diminish uh, the dangers if you drink too much, but alcohol on the whole would not probably have killed in the set on the same scale. These drugs have no. killed enormous numbers of people. We're talking, according to the CDC, 400,000 people in the past uh, two decades, a little bit more than half that number is people who died from prescription pills, the others from illicit opioids. Wow. But it's all part of the same, despite the drug companies' attempts to separate those things, mm-hmm. it's all part of the same. So you're absolutely right about the social factors. Um, yeah. It's whether you, you feed the demand. True. Wow, what a uh, an, an enlightening enlightening story. I mean, I, I've learned so much just listening. I mean, I, I know that not all of our listeners know that this even happened in their country, you know, that, that they're just aware of their own little neighborhood, their own little pocket of this, or what they see on the news. But I encourage any of our listeners to pick up your book. Uh, once again, that is, make sure I get it correct. Um, American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. And uh, for any of our listeners, you can get that on Amazon. There is a paperback, hardcover, audiobook, a variety of different ways to read this. And I would encourage you to do so and learn as much as you can about this because that is the secret to this, learning yeah. about it, understanding, I, opening your eyes. And we're very, <clears throat> excuse me, we're very fortunate because Chris always sends me the um, articles that he writes um, as soon as they're available. Mm-hmm. And we, we always share them on Magnolia, uh, on, our, on all of our pages, actually. <clears throat> I try to share them as much as possible all over the place because I really want people to know about the things he writes about. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. As I said, I'm, I'm usually much more talkative, but I was just perfectly content to sit and listen to you tell me the story. Um, that, because that never it was, happens. Never. It doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm usually a lot more talkative, but that that was incredible. I really appreciate learning about that. And and like I said, there's it did turn my stomach a little bit to hear about it and to hear the depth of it and to you know in my mind watch the movie of all these criminals um, just conspiring to conspire and sitting around and thinking about us as dollar signs and pawns and their efforts to further their company's agenda, improve their stock portfolio, whatever it is that they're doing, you know, uh, it was just uncomfortable to listen to. Uh, But it's also encouraging to hear that people are exposing it, that there are trials exposing it, that there are memos coming out, that there are, there's insight into what happens so that we don't repeat it. I can't Um, stop. um, I can't stop thinking about all the, the, beautiful children and, and, and loved ones that we've lost and all of my friends who have lost children. And that's what I, I guess I, 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 that's what really pops out to me is all those people did not have to die. That's true. Um, yeah. And, you know, talking to you, um, which I'm very grateful to do. Um, but I would say go to the book if you want detail uh, mm-hmm. on just how cynical that campaign was, how they influenced the Food and Drug Administration, Mm -hmm. um, the lengths they went to to distort facts, um, who they paid off, Mm -hmm. um, it's it's in there. And it it shocked me when I was researching it, and I I think it will shock people to read it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to pick that book up and read it for themselves so they can can hear the the unabridged story. Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. And I'll make sure all of our listeners have access to uh, the details about your book and links to some of your articles and stuff as well in the notes. That's great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Great talking to you both. That was great. Thank you so much. Take care, Chris. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye now. I would like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. As always, if you'd like to find out all of the different ways that you can listen to and subscribe to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to listen, download, and subscribe, so we encourage you to choose the one that is most appropriate for you. And as always, 
we would encourage our listeners to get informed and stay connected. Thank you for joining us.